0: Jeremiah is going to join us as he shares the word. But before he does, I'm going to read the scripture verse that he's going to share from. And it's from Matthew 4, verse 1, 1 to 7. This is what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. That's the reading of the word. Here's Jeremiah to share with us.
1: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you, Dina. You're welcome. So friendly. Um, if, you, if you're a partner at the church, you get to hang out with Dina more often. And if that's not a reason in and of itself to be a partner here, I don't know what is. Um, this morning we're in Matthew 4, and we're going to talk about the second temptation. Last week we talked about the, f- the first temptation, um, and we're going to continue on in our telos series. Telos is um, defined as an ultimate aim or objective. And we're starting the year talking about telos, um, because what we're saying is um, the start of the year is a time for reflection. Everyone's reevaluating themselves, their goals, what they achieved last year, and and you're headed in a direction. Uh, Whether, you know, no matter how intentional or not you are about, you know, having life goals and plans, you're moving in a certain direction. And so what we want to do in January is spend these first, um, the first three sermons of this series, this Telos series, sort of deconstructing what common um, aims and objectives are. Um, you know, all throughout, if you grew up in, in, in the church, you've heard uh, things referenced as the flesh. You know, you, you always hear you know, the, the concept of the flesh, and um, sometimes it's hard to decipher what that really is, but what's fun Um, And helpful about Matthew 4 is you have the devil actually interacting with Jesus. So if you want to know how the devil operates, you you get to see it pretty clearly here in these verses. Um, And so if you're interested in that at all, this is is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, And so we're in Matthew 4, and and three points for this morning's sermon. One, who is doing the tempting? Two, what is the temptation? And three, where, where do we have the power to resist it? Okay, simple enough, um, who is doing the tempting two uh, what is the temptation three, where is the power to resist um, and we'll take them one at a time, starting with the first so one who is doing the tempting now this seems very simple because we've heard the story before you've seen um you know the 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 Bible acted out version I think it's on like Amazon prime very fun um, but I don't want to brush past this, because it, most of us, especially in our Western context, um, don't really know what to do with it, right? And so the question is, who is doing the tempting? And, and so very clearly, the, the tempter is the devil, right? Um, but in, in our Western society, where we've pretty much scrubbed out all sense of the supernatural, uh, we don't know what that actually means to interact with that on a day-to-day basis, Right, so for us, we do have a category for evil, but often evil is, are just you know random things that uh, random bad things that happen, right? Because we give into these impulses or urges that we know are bad, right? And so we give into them. And so to be an evolved person in our society is to learn how to discipline those urges, and that, that's simply what it means, you know, for evil. It, it, and often we say, you know, it's not even anyone's fault, really. It's, uh, you know, they just never learn to harness those those urges. I look at my son, and what's really fun is, um, you know, I, I see so much of myself in him, and when, sometimes when he's acting out, because it's like two hours and you know, meeting with people, and um, I can see him getting antsy, and he gets frustrated. And I look at him, and I say, that's exactly how I feel. I've just learned to contain it, right? So, but, but in our... In our in our worldview, that, that's really all we see it as, all these, these urges and these impulses that if you're an evolved person, um, you've, you've learned how to mature past. But that's not quite the full biblical story. Um, the picture is, and I think this is, this is the more accurate one, is um, you, you have an enemy. Um, you have a nemesis. The way that it's that, really helpful for me to understand it, I, we have some friends who went to the same college as us. And so they were over the other other week, and they brought up this question of, you know, who is your college nemesis, right? Who is your college nemesis? And, you know, before you judge, one, it's a fun question, especially if you know similar people, and two, you have a college nemesis, and if not college, definitely a high school one, right? Um, And and who, if you're playing along, who is your college nemesis? It's the person that you think of. It could be a work, work nemesis, right? It's a person you think of and you have this visceral reaction straight in your gut. Like, you can't control it. And, and, um, and, and you, just, you just have that look in your eye. You know, like, even if you, know, you have a nice plate of food in front of you, but when your nemesis comes to mind, you're like, ah, they're out to get me. And what scripture says is you actually do have a nemesis. Um, two, two passages that's worth looking at. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. I just flip for effect because I, I have it on a piece of paper. But <laughs> Ephesians 6 says, For we do not know, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the reality is your nemesis, your enemy is not your spouse, though it feels that way sometimes, um, or your coworker or that person in college who draws so much energy out of you. You do have a nemesis. So who exactly is this ne- nemesis? Who is this enemy that you have? So if you have an enemy and you're not aware of that enemy, it seems like a good way to lose, right? You're just like unaware of the ways you're being attacked. Um, And in Luke 22, Jesus is having a conversation with with Peter, right before Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So what you have here is Peter saying, or Jesus saying to Peter, um, that Satan actively targets demands, and sifts. He is, the devil is the true enemy, and we should treat him as one. And we should have a visceral reaction at the thought of him targeting our families, our church, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. So if this is true, that he is the enemy, the question is, how does he operate? And I think um, our passage gives us a sense of that. So two quick things about How the devil operates. One, he makes you question what you just heard the the father say. He makes you question um, what you just heard the father say. Why is this this important for the passage? Um, The second temptation starts off just like the first. with, With the devil saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. Now why is this important? Because at the end of the previous chapter, the one right before it, you get this scene you get the scene of Jesus getting baptized um, by John. And in the scene, Jesus walks into the water, right? Um, The heavens open up, and you hear this audible voice. And the Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And what you find that um, just four or five verses later, the first thing that the devil targets when he comes after Jesus is the very phrase that's spoken by the Father. So the first step is he makes you question what exactly the Father has said. I think it says something about our interacting with the words of God, not holding it in reverence, not understanding that it is actually the very words of God. Um, so he makes you qu- the, the devil makes you question what the Father says, but, but part two of that is um, he makes you question your Father's delight in you. Right, the statement, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, is a statement of identity. It's a statement of security. Um, it's a statement marked by pleasure. And the devil knows that if he can get you questioning your sense of how God made you, what God thinks of you, what God's purposes are for you, then it's a good start. He knows that if he can get you doubting those things, then you could be influenced away from a relationship with God. Now, as as a father, I think about this a lot for my own kids, the question of, like, what exactly do kids need? You know, so I I watch parents. um, I think about my own childhood. And um, I'm I'm constantly thinking, you know, what is it parents actually, what do kids actually need from their parents? And um, my best guess to this moment is um, what children need. I mean, more than, you know, being given life direction, um, or even being provided for is the, sense that, um, is the sense that they're enjoyed, right? That there's a pleasure there. Because without speaking the words, um, you have, I feel like you have kids asking, um, do you enjoy me or am I just a burden to you? Do you find pleasure in me or am I just a project um, that you're undertaking to cover up your own sense of feeling defective? Um, the statement, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, it talks about pleasure. He enjoys his kid. The father enjoys his son. Um, and this morning, you you are his kid. Um, do you know how much he enjoys you? Um, do, do you sense um, that he, he takes um, pleasure in you? Because the devil knows that if you actually sense that, like more than intellectually knowing it, but if you sense the Father's love for you, then, then the game is over. Um, then the devil would have lost. And so one, uh, who is doing the tempting? It's the devil. He's the enemy. He's your true nemesis. Um, what, what's fun about that idea is um, it, it gave me a whole set of like a music I could listen to again. Because, um, because, like, in rap music, there's a lot of, like, enemy stuff, and I never knew what quite to do with it, but now I just, like, turn on my, uh, you know, I need security by Chance the Rapper, and I'm like, oh, yeah, the enemy. He's after me. Um, and so you have an enemy this morning. Are you taking it seriously? Are you taking seriously the fact that he's targeting you? Um. He's targeting your family. He's targeting your children. He's targeting the very people that you love the most. Um, Are you taking that seriously? And two, what is the temptation? Um, To understand what the temptation is for this second temptation, we're going to focus on the phrase, um, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. Um, So the devil takes Jesus Right So we know that in the start of the chapter it starts with um, Jesus spending forty days and forty nights in the wilderness, and the devil takes jesus from the from the isolation of the wilderness and he takes him straight to the crowds of um, that's that fill the center of the nation's um, public and religious life the, the city where the temple is, and not only to one of the most um, the most crowded neighborhoods in the most crowded city, but to the temple. The most storied building in the most important city, um, where there, there are no doubt many people. And um, he puts them on a building that's set high above um, what would have been, a, you know, this, this valley. All right, so he places them on this, on this, at the temple, high above the valley, and he tells him, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. Throw yourself down into the valley and, um, and show the crowds how you can control the angels. So what is the temptation all about? This temptation about throwing yourself down is really this urging for Jesus to prove himself to the crowds. Um, what he's saying is, th- win the crowd, because if you win the crowd, you can manipulate them to your ends. If you win the crowd, um, if you win the crowd, things will go better for you. You can accomplish the purposes that God has put for you if you just win the crowds. If you manipulate the crowd, if you manipulate others, you can get your way. Now, you know, why exactly does, does it matter to win the crowds? Um, and this is, this is the thrust of the argument this morning because, um, what I want to put forth is that winning the crowds, um, is important because the crowds hold power. Um, the crowds are consistently a character in the larger narrative of Scripture. Um, they throw their weight around, they, they taunt, they cheer, they affirm, they celebrate, they question, they coerce, they move with unity. And just as they did then, they continue to do so today. Um, and so the crowds are this powerful entity um, that the devil is saying, if you win them, you, you can get all of what, um, all of what you're looking to accomplish done. And so where, where's the power? You know, what, what power do the crowds hold? Right? What power do the crowds hold anyway? Three things that, that I'm arguing for. So the crowds can do these three things. One, crowds can make you feel seen. One, crowds have power to set you free. And three, um, crowds have power to determine your value. So one... Crowds can make you feel seen. So um, Robin Williams, the great comedic legend, Nos, uh, most known to my generation as playing the genie in Aladdin. <clears throat> um, when he committed suicide in 2014, there was an interview um, that, that surfaced from 2010 with comedian Mark Marone. And in this, this you know, wide-ranging interview, it was like podcast, right? So it's like 90 minutes long. Um, I think, actually. But it was long. And... They talk about how Robin Williams battled depression, Um, he struggled with sobriety, and Mark Marone, the comedian, asked him, you know, where did this start again? Because you battled with this, but you were over it, where did it start again? And he talks about, um, Robin Williams talks about filming in Alaska, right, this movie, I think it was The Big White. Again, I only know him for Aladdin. That's a joke, I know him for other things. But he was in Alaska. And, and he was in Alaska thinking, what am I doing here? And this great fear sort of seized him. And he started asking himself, you know, have the crowds forgotten about me? Have people forgotten about me? Am I past my prime? Is my career over? And he started drinking. And it sent him into this tailspin where he couldn't show up at, like, large movie festivals without being hammered. Um, but he has this phrase in the middle of this season of his life where he says, but the one sanity clause... Um, was being in front. Um, He says, it's the weird thing where you have all this stuff and the only sanity clause is that going on stage is the one salvation. Going on stage is the one salvation. The sense that, you know, when I'm by myself and no one knows who I am, and and I'm worried about, you know, um, is Jim Carrey more popular than me now? Um, Being in front of people made him feel seen. And it it became like a drug to him. He said it, it would wear off. You know, the Academy Award that he won for Good Will Hunting wore off in the next week, but there was something about being in front of a crowd that was just enough to inject him just one more time. And the crowds can make you feel seen. Uh, you know, talk to anyone who's really good at social media. I'm, like, very terrible at it. Um, but there's, there's folks who are very good. And and, and the story of social media is, is at the click of your hands, you have the crowd, right? Um, voice for radio, but but now you got like hands for Twitter and, and you got everyone's attention because you're so witty and you have control of the crowd and the crowds can make you feel seen um, and deep inside each of us is a longing to be known I mean that's what we believe here we believe we were made for that longing it's not bad it's just supposed to be aimed at the right place and what the crowd seems to provide you is a counterfeit of that um, It doesn't give you the approval um, that you so badly long for. So, one, crowds can make you feel seen. Two, crowds have power to set you free. In the film Gladiator, um, Russell Crowe plays a powerful general turned enslaved gladiator, shipped off um, to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And it follows his attempts to stay alive long enough to be able to kill the current emperor who murdered his family. you had enough time to watch it, in case that was a spoiler. Um, in a conversation with his, his boss, or owner, Proximo, they have this exchange. Crow says, You ask me what I want. I, too, want to stand before the emperor as you did. And do you remember how Proximo responds? He says, Then listen to me. Learn from me. I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. You win, your, you win the crowd and you will win your freedom. And do you remember the rest of the movie? I mean, they're in the Colosseum, and it's, it's um, the fighters on the, gla- on, the, on the floor, they live and die by, by the emperor's thumb, whichever direction it goes. Up means he's alive, down means he's dead. But what controls the thumb? It's the crowd. It's the hoot and the holler of the crowd that tells people who lives and who dies. Now, Jesus knew this well. He stood before a crowd, um, and the choice was between him and Barabbas. Who was the crowd going to choose? And, and, and Pilate brought out Barabbas just thinking maybe, just maybe, um, the crowd wouldn't be dumb enough to choose a convicted, um, a, a convicted murderer. Um, but what did the crowds do? Uh, they chose Barabbas. And a part of me thinks if Jesus had only won the crowd when the devil told him to, would they have been impressed with him long enough to keep him alive that day? Um, the crowds, um, the crowds have a power to set you free. Or so they promise. Um, So one, uh, they they, they can make you feel seen. Crowds have the power to set you free. Three, crowds can determine value. Um, Crowds determining value is what we call markets. Now in market systems, the assessment of the crowd is often the baseline for what we believe to be rational. If you're in line with the crowd, then you're rational. If you're not in line with the crowd, uh, then you're irrational. Um, And if you've ever been part of a new venture, if you've ever tried to put a project together, you know the importance of swaying the crowd towards your product or your service. Um, If you cannot convince the crowds that your product is worthwhile, then your company or your organization will die. If the crowds rule... Um, that your company or organization has nothing to offer, um, then by market standards, you have nothing to offer, right? Um, and this is what's so fun about, like, how I built this and podcasts like that, where you hear founder stories. I was listening to, like, Whole Foods and Southwest the other day. Um, because you normally hear this entrepreneur and this founder who, who's, who's talking about the story of their business, and he says, you know, I was working on this for so long, and I was giving everything I had to it, I mortgaged my home for it. I lost, I lost my kids over it, and then finally, people started taking notice. Um, It was almost as though the crowd, the crowd, finally gave them them the vindication they sought, and it's the approval from the crowd that turned them from nobodies into somebodies. And I think everybody wants to feel like they're a somebody. Um, And churches and Christians are no stranger to the allure of the crowd. Chaplain of the Senate, Dick Halverson, once said, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Then it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. An enterprise. And the implications of being an enterprise is churches um, become so focused on wanting to build a crowd for the sake of building a big crowd. Um, and that's not to say we're opposed to growing, but we, we know, and we talk about this all the time, that if we're growing, if we're focusing on growth for the sake of growth's sake, um, then we would have missed it. We would have missed it. Um, and so, but, but that's not only true for, for churches as a whole, but also true for Christians. Um, I, I love this story. So Jules and I were also reminded um, by the same friends at the start of the story about a college professor that we had, and he used to tell the story about about um, how one day, a, a s- students from our Christian college went up to him and they said, "You know, professor." And this guy's like the Gandalf, right, of our of our Christian college. My buddies, giggling. Um, and this guy's like, you know, he's, he just has sway. I mean, he just tells these stories, and you're crying, ugly crying, in the middle of chapel. You know, it's beautiful. Um, and so these these students came up to him one day and they were like, "Professor, w- we want to be used by God." And he said, oh, okay. So he grabbed some shovels. It was snowy day. And he started walking them towards shovels, um, t- towards driveways that weren't shoveled yet. And, and they looked at him a little confused. And they said, no, professor, we want to be used by God. And he looked at them and he realized, and he told them, he's like, um, you don't want to be used by God. You want to be famous for Jesus. Um, you don't want to be used by God. You want to be famous for Jesus. And... The difference between used by God and famous for Jesus is the presence and the affirmation of a large crowd. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a desire to maybe manipulate the crowd for the sake of making, um, making yourself look good. And this is, side note, is why we value so much the movement here from, from a tender to partner uh, to um, you know, a partner and, and, and participant in our hope groups. Um, because, um, because we, we value... Um, because what we believe is that Jesus invites you into a new family, All right? Like, it, so so what, we, what we know is this is the progression. Um, if you go to one of our hope groups for the first few weeks, you're going to be like, oh, this is like, you know, this is awkward. Nobody's, you know, nobody knows me. Um, and, and it could feel, I mean, you, and, and you'll, you'll sit there, you'll critique it, you'll hate the curriculum. Who's the, who's the guy in charge of this anyway? You know, me. Um, And you'd be like, oh, this is terrible, I'm going to go back to wherever, just start listening to Craig's sermons online instead of coming. Um, But this is what we believe about what happens in hope groups. You stay there, you get to know people. And you go from being a part of the crowd that's able to just, you know, where culture teaches us to analyze and to exploit value, um, and you actually just get to know people. You learn their stories. You know, you ask them to coffee, and you hear about, you know, where they grew up, and the farm in the country, you know, where they grew up and, and how they used to tip, tip cows over with their high school friends. I don't know. It's possible. But you get to know them. Truly know somebody. And that, and that's how, and that's how lives have changed. Um, and so that's what we value. And that's a plug. Um, we, we really think this is where, um, this is where it happens. Um, So the allure of the crowd is powerful because crowds can make you feel seen. Two, crowds have power to set you free. Three, crowds have power to determine your value. Um, And it can be all-consuming. I mean, that's why people, I mean, uh, some of us, like, hate social media, but we can't get off it because we want to know what the crowd thinks. You know, we we, want to see um, guys who act out at large rallies get dragged, right? We want to see mob justice. Um, and there's real power there, and, and, and Jesus would have felt that. So the question is, where do we find the power to resist? Where do we find the power to resist um, the allure of trying to manipulate others? Um, and I think the answer is in the phrase, um, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is where we close. Um, I want us to see that this reference about, you know, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test is all about water, right? Jesus is just coming out of the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights, right? So he's thirsty. Um, and what he does is, is he has this phrase when, when the devil says, you know, throw yourself down, he responds um, by this phrase that you could find somewhere else in scripture. And when you trace it back um, through Deuteronomy, um, you find that Moses is telling the people after you know, he's kind of giving them a summary of where they've been, giving them their history. He says this phrase, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa. So the question is, what happened at Massa? And I feel like if you grew up in a Sunday school, that you would have known the story. It's it's found in Exodus 17. He gives a story of a people who are making their way through the wilderness, and they're complaining to Moses about not having enough water. Um, they're thirsty. And this, I mean, and, and you know, Jesus, um, Moses... Ends up being provide water, and we'll get to that later about how exactly he did that. But the point is they're thirsty. They're thirsty. Um, And this is what Jesus pulls up, and this is what he references in the middle of the second temptation. And all these temptations are are about, you, you know, there's a deeper thirst. The first temptation was about bread. It was about hunger, and he was pointing to spiritual hunger. And the second temptation, it's about thirst, and he's pointing to spiritual thirst. So the question is, where do we find this theme of spiritual thirst in other places of scripture? Um, And we see that most clearly in John 4. In the story, in in John 4, what you have is Jesus meeting with the woman at the well. And what we know about this woman is she's had five wives and uh, five husbands, um, and the person that that she's currently with, not even married to. Um, And she's pulling water up from the well, and we get clues that she might be on the outside of, of her society, she might be ostracized a little bit. And Jesus asked her for a drink of water um, as she's pulling up water from the well. And they have this exchange. I'm just going to read a few verses. And Jesus told her, answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So they're talking about water, and Jesus says, "Um, I I have this water that can quench spiritual thirst. Um, and for her in this situation, speaking directly to her circumstances, um, this, this spiritual thirst is a longing for someone to delight in us, someone or just anything outside of us to speak to our immeasurable value. Um, we will not stop searching until it is filled, and the devil will send person after person into our bedroom and, or into the crowd with promises that it will satiate our longing. And we will manipulate crowds to hear them scream at us with adoration. But Jesus tells us that our thirst is, how our thirst is quenched. And Jesus says he is the living water. Um, there's a, a picture of, of, um, that I've, I've heard once that's really helpful to me, right? So here's the story. My, um, my mother-in-law is from Vermont. And in Vermont, they have great maple syrup, right? And she's all about her maple syrup. Um, when my wife was teaching in Detroit, she would get um, large packages of maple syrup. When we moved from Detroit to Houston, we lugged around the large ga- like gallon size of maple syrup because there was still so much, right? Um, and the picture is we, we are all spiritually thirsty. You're, you're, you're made and you're born with this thirst. And it's almost as though we're, we're running this marathon. And at the end of a marathon, thirsty and tired, Uh, we grab one of these big gallons of um, Vermont maple syrup and we start chugging it. Um, And it doesn't quench our thirst. It just doesn't. It wasn't made to. Pancakes, yes. Um, Quench your thirst, no. Um, So are you drinking Vermont maple syrup this morning? Um, Going back to the episode of Moses, and I'll ask uh, Brittany and the band to come back. Going back to the episode of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, they were asking for water, and God instructs Moses to strike a rock. He struck a rock, right, and water came out. Um, and all the Israelites drank from the water from that rock. Um, there's a New Testament author, his name is Paul. He, he, you know, he, he arrives on the scene after Jesus, and he picks up on this story, and he says, um, he says they, they our ancestors, they, they ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. And this is where I close this morning. I say, we manipulate others because we were made to feel the delight of God. And when we do not get it, we are tempted to go and get it ourselves. But the harsh reality is the crowd is incapable of truly knowing you in the ways that you want. Um, where do I know that? Um, my wife and I just finished Mrs. Maisel, and she has this beautiful line. Um, the second season, anyway. Um, so she has this line uh, where you know it's it's tracking her career and how it's picking up momentum. And she says, you know, I I've just signed up to be all alone. And she's killing it in front of crowds. Like people are like, you know, affirming her. And she says, um, I've just signed up to be all alone. I'm going to be alone. And I don't want to be alone. She says, Not tonight. I really just need to be with someone who loves me. That's so why I love, you know, hearing from comics, real or fake, because they get it, right? They have people applauding them for days. And yet they just know down deep it's not enough. But what we want is for someone to know us and to truly love us. And if you're thirsty for admiration and affection from others and are tempted to contort yourself to make them love you, the question this morning is, will you drink from the well that won't run dry would you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with the presence of Jesus would you believe down to your core that because of Jesus and what he did because he was struck on our behalf that you aren't enjoyed by the Father this morning, you are enjoyed